Chapter 6 of the French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Orty. The French Revolution by Robert Matteson Johnston. Chapter 6 From Versailles to Paris. The effect of the insurrection of Paris was immediate. Bézonval, lacking instructions and intimidated by the violence of the rising, held his troops back. While Louis, shrinking from violence as he always did, and alarmed at the desertion in the army, decided to bow before the storm. He had nerved himself to a definite and resolute policy, but the instant that policy had come to the logical proof of bloodletting, he had fallen away. His kindliness, his incapacity for action, had asserted themselves strongly. Necker was once more recalled, and once more weakly lent himself to what was rapidly becoming a farcical procedure. The king, without ceremony, presented himself to the National Assembly and announced that in view of the events of the day before, he had recalled his minister and ordered Bézonval's troops to be withdrawn. The Assembly manifested its satisfaction and sent a deputation, headed by Bailly, to communicate this good news to Paris and on the same day began the first movement of emigration of the defeated courtier caste, headed by the Comte d'Artois and de Breteuil. The deputation from the Assembly presently reached Paris and was received by the Committee of the Sections at the Hôtel de Ville. There followed congratulation, speech-making, disorder and excitement. And out of it the insurrection evolved a political head and a military leader, Bailly and Lafayette. Bailly was proposed and acclaimed as mayor of Paris. This office was new, and therefore revolutionary, but as the provost of the merchants had clearly gone for all time, it was necessary to find something to replace him. And what could be better than this? The new mayor had, as qualifications for his office, two facts only. He was the senior deputy of the city to the National Assembly. He possessed an unquenchable supply of civic and complementary eloquence. Behind this figurehead, the sections soon built up a new municipality or town council made up of delegates from the sections, and that varied in numbers at different times. Paris also required a military leader, and for that post the name of the Marquis de Lafayette was acclaimed. Lafayette is a personage easy to praise or to blame, but not to estimate justly. At this moment, he enjoyed all the prestige of his brilliant connection with the cause of American independence ten years before, and of his constancy to the idea of liberty. His enemies, and they were many in court circles, could detect easily enough the vanity that entered into his composition, but neither they nor his friends could recognise or appreciate in him that truest liberalism of all, which is toleration. Lafayette had already learnt the lesson it took France a century to learn, that liberty implies freedom of opinion for others, and that reasonable compromise is the true basis of constructive politics. When later he appeared to swerve or to contradict himself, it was often enough merely because he felt the scruples of a true devotee of liberty, against imposing a policy. For the moment he had become a popular idol, the generous, brave, high-minded young knight, champion of the popular cause. 
He was to command the civic guards of the city of Paris, 40,000 armed citizens, the national guards, as they became, owing to the rest of France following the example of Paris. His first act was to give them a cockade by adding the king's white to the city's red and blue, thus forming the same tricolour that he had already fought under in another struggle for liberty ten years before. The king's withdrawal of the troops implied a policy of conciliation, and he was therefore unable to resist the demand that he should demonstrate his acceptance of the events of Paris by a formal visit to the city. Reluctant and half-expecting violence, he made his entry on the 17th between lines of armed citizens representing every class of his Parisian subjects, and proceeded to the Hôtel de Ville. It was an occasion on which a little kingly grace, or a little kingly boldness, which so many of his ancestors commanded, might have fired the flame of pent-up popular emotion. But there was nothing of this sort to be found in the apathetic Louis. Bailly's stores of oratory had to be drawn on freely for what the king found himself unable to supply. And the honours of the day, which he might so easily have had, were heaped instead on the dashing Lafayette. As it was, Louis returned safely to Versailles, having met with a not unfriendly reception, but having failed to adjust himself to the new situation, which was what he was bound to attempt, having once abandoned the policy of repression by force. The uproar of the 14th of July could not be suddenly changed to a calm, whatever Louis the Sixteenth, Lafayette and Bailly might do. Grave disorders broke out in many parts of France, and scenes of violence continued in Paris. On the 20th, Count Lally moved a resolution for the repression of the excesses that were being committed, but the Assembly, with no sense of responsibility for the conduct of affairs, directly interested, on the contrary, in weakening the executive, defeated it. In Paris, these scenes culminated on the 23rd, when Foulon, who had been controleur des finances, was brought into the city from his country estate, where he had been seized. Foulon represented all that was worst in the old regime. As commissary with the French armies, and later in the internal administration of the country, he had displayed the most heartless rapacity. His attitude towards the lower classes was echoed in utterances that were popularly quoted. The people, he declared, might feed on hay while he was minister. The people had now got him in their clutches. In vain, Bailly and Lafayette, during a long agony at the Hôtel de Ville, attempted to save him. The mob would not be denied. Finally, Foulon was seized. He was strung up to a street lantern, and later his head, the mouth stuffed full of hay and nettles, was paraded in triumph through the streets. While such scenes were being enacted in Paris, and while all through France the large class of poor and criminals created by Bourbonism was committing even worse excesses, the Assembly was addressing itself to the task of regenerating France by endowing her with a constitution. This task appeared comparatively simple, and was taken up with a light heart. It was only by degrees that the Assembly discovered the difficulties in the way, and it proved to be only after two years of hard labour that it could get its constitution accomplished, and even then it proved almost useless. The constitution may be left for the present to be considered when, in 1791, it became operative. The general trend of the Assembly, however, 
was to disassociate itself from practical concerns of government to interest itself in the theories of politics, and both in its attitude towards the events of the day and in its constitutional policy to weaken the executive. The executive and the Bourbon regime were synonymous, and so the men of the National Assembly, with no responsibility as it seemed for the good government of France, tried hard at the moment when a vigorous and able executive was more than necessary to pull down the feeble one that existed. It was the nemesis that Bourbonism had brought on itself. In the midst of these debates, the practical question of disorder thrust itself forward once more in very insistent form and with very remarkable results on the night of the 4th of August. In parts of France, the excitement had taken the form of a regular jacquerie in which the isolated country houses and families of the aristocracy had suffered most. Details were accumulating, and a terrible picture was unfolded before the assembly that night. How was the evil to be dealt with? It was the injured themselves who indicated the remedy at their own personal sacrifice. The nobles of the assembly, led by Noailles, Daguillon, Beauharnais, Lamette, La Rochefoucauld, declared that if the people had attacked the property of the nobles, it was because that property represented the iniquities of feudalism, that the fault lay there, and that the remedy was not to repress the people, but to suppress the institution. They therefore proposed to the Assembly that instead of issuing proclamations calling on the people to restore order, it should vote decrees for the abolition of feudalism. And so feudalism, or what passed by the name, went by the board amid scenes of wild enthusiasm. All the seigneurial rights accumulated during a thousand years by the dominant military caste, the right of justice, the privilege of commanding armies, the hunting privileges, the warren, the dovecot, serfage, were sacrificed on the altar of patriotic regeneration. The burden of the centuries was suddenly lifted from the shoulders of Jacques Bonhomme. The men who proposed this surrender of their rights, who had already, by joining the Tiers, done so much to accomplish the great social revolution, deserve greater consideration as a class than history has, as a rule, meted out to them. The French nobility at the close of the 18th century counted in its ranks a great number of admirable men, admirable for loyalty, for intellectuality, for generosity. It is true that the most conspicuous, those who made up the court or who secured the lucrative appointments, had caught the plague of Versailles, and that even in the provincial nobility there was much copying of the fashion of the courtiers. But there were other representatives of the order. Most conspicuous was that large class of liberal nobles who played so great a part in the early days of the Revolution. The ten deputies elected by the nobility of Paris to the States-General all belonged to that category. Grave, educated men, writers and thinkers, versed in questions of politics, economics, religion and education, experienced in many details of practical government, soldiers and local administrators, penetrated with the thought of a protesting and humanitarian age. Some, like Lafayette, had played conspicuous roles and proved revolution in the making. Others, like La Rochefoucauld, had mastered every intricacy of political and philanthropic thought, and some, like Condorcet, had proved themselves among the masters of science of their time. Kants, marquises, dukes, 
They were prepared to lay all aside in the overwhelming demand which suffering humanity made for release from all its troubles. And alongside of these, more loyal to their king if less loyal to humanity, no less admirable if lagging a little in knowledge and development, were those hundreds of country gentlemen, many of them poor, who when the day of adversity came, rallied to their sovereigns, faced the guillotine for them, or laid down their lives following the fearless standard of Henri de la Roche-Jacquelin. The position of the French nobility, and the part it played, has been too much forgotten. Its most intelligent section nearly led the revolution, which later fell into the hands of lawyers and theorists, then of demagogues, and lastly of soldiers. What has just been said does not imply that the action of the National Assembly on the night of the 4th of August was altogether admirable. The example of the nobles was infectious. A consuming fervour of self-sacrifice seized every member of the house. Archbishops, bishops and abbots rushed to the tribune and offered all they could. Tithes, pluralities and every sort of ecclesiastical privilege were sacrificed. The unprivileged class attempted desperately, but in vain, to hold its own in the contest, and could find nothing more to surrender than some of the special privileges and franchises attached to certain provinces and cities of the kingdom. Now all this was generous and admirable. It forms one of the most generous and admirable pages in history. It was even more. It was the emphatic and right declaration that privilege and class distinction was the root of all the evils of the old system, and had been condemned by the French nation. But it had none of the qualities of practical statesmanship. It did not tend to decrease disorder, but the contrary. And for the moment, with reform advancing so prosperously, order was the first consideration. The effects of the decrees were disastrous and intensified the bad conditions of the country. The woodlands were immediately invaded by armies of timber and fuel cutters. Game was killed off. The poor country priest found his salary gone. The gabel itself was disregarded. Local justice came to an end. And so the government, with all its extra load, found the already failing revenue almost entirely cut off. The peasants and people of France interpreted the decrees after their fashion, refused to pay taxes and abused the surrendered privileges. Through August and September, the Assembly continued its constitutional debates, one of the three actors in this great political tragedy. The other two, Paris and King Louis, watched its proceedings with growing impatience. Uneasy at the increasing unrest of the capital, at the now popular cry that the king ought to reside in Paris, and at the constitutional demands which the assembly was gradually formulating and accumulating, Louis decided to bring some troops into Versailles for his protection, this duty being assigned to the regiment of Flanders. This was a small enough matter when compared with the formidable preparations of de Broglie and Besenval three months before. Yet it served the purpose of immediately crystallising two opposite currents of opinion. In Paris, suffering was intense. There had been a good harvest, and in many respects the economic situation was better. But there was a drought, and the millers, depending on water to drive their mills, could not produce flour. There had been a sudden curtailment of court and aristocratic expenditure, so that the Parisian wage earner was unemployed. The emigration had thrown many retainers out of their places. Paris was starving even before the summer months were over, 
and the agitators and political leaders were not slow to point to Versailles as the cause. That city, owing to the king's presence, was always comparatively well supplied with provisions. If only Louis could be brought to the capital, Versailles might starve and Paris would fatten. And winter was fast coming on. At the Palace of Versailles, offended pride and rebounding hope were going out to the Regiment of Flanders. On the 1st of October, the crisis was reached. On that day, the Assembly sent to the King a declaration of rights to which his assent was demanded. In the evening, a banquet was given in the palace to bring together the officers of the King's bodyguard, of the Regiment of Flanders and of the National Guards of Versailles, and it resulted in a demonstration. The King and Queen visited the assembled officers and were received with great enthusiasm. O Richard, O Mordois, the air that Blondel sings to Richard, the imprisoned King of England, in the then popular opera by Gretry was sung, and officers of the National Guard were moved to change their tricolour cockade for the white one of the King. All this, if not very dangerous, was exciting. It was immensely magnified by rumour. In Paris, the popular orators soon conjured up visions of a great royalist plot and the renewal of military operations against the city. On the 5th of October, the king, struggling against the pressure of the assembly, sent in a conditional acceptance of the proposals of the first, making some reservations as to the Declaration of Rights. He did not know that at the very moment Paris had risen once more and was already marching out to Versailles to carry him off and bring him back to the capital. The insurrection of the 5th of October had rather obscure origins. Some of its leading factors, however, stand out clearly enough. First, there was the slowly rising tide of the popular impatience, the feeling that after all the efforts and success of the spring and summer, the situation of affairs was still no better, and that to improve it, the king must come to Paris. All this increasing vastly in force since the 1st of October. Then there was the fact that Paris knew on the evening of the 4th that Louis would refuse, or in part refuse, the demands of the Assembly, and that it was necessary, therefore, to find a reply to the King's move. Last of all was hunger, and it was the part of the Parisian people most nearly touched by hunger that actually raised the standard of revolt. The women felt the pinch of famine more bitterly than the men, and the women played a noteworthy part in the formation of those deep strata of popular opinion, or instinct, on which, in turn, each of the revolutionary parties had to build their power. The women were the first to turn the cannon against the king, and they were the last to raise the horrible howl of the guillotine at the prisoners as they passed the prison gates to go to the scaffold. And the reason is not far to seek. It was they who had to look after the household, to tend the sick, to feed the children. And it was they who day after day, year after year, formed in the long procession waiting to reach the baker's or the butcher's stall. Often enough, they stood and struggled for hours, sometimes through the whole night, their hearts aching for the loved ones at home, at the end of all, to find nothing left, to return empty-handed. So late as the year 1795, there was a period of several months during which the individual ration, for those who could pay, and for those who were lucky, was but two ounces of black bread a day, while butcher's meat failed completely on many occasions and was always a costly luxury. 
The details of the famine are scattered broadly through the pages of the contemporaries, and at every point the woman appears, wretched, lamenting, furious, ravenous for food, fighting for it and plundering, her heart dulled with bitterness and her mouth distorted with curses for those pointed out to her as the cause of all her sufferings. Louis, Marie Antoinette, Brissot, Vergniaud, Hébert. She cared little what the name was, but was equally ready to rend them when told that they stood for the starvation of her children, her sick or her husband. And she was easily enough persuaded that some one person was responsible. In the morning hours of the 6th of October, she was convinced that Louis was that person. In the early hours of that day, a knot of women, one of them beating a drum, others lugubriously chanting Dupin, Dupin, bread, bread, appeared in the streets of Paris. Growing in numbers as they advanced, an inchoate mob of women, men and boys, they proceeded to the Hôtel de Ville. There, perhaps, they would find relief. But there was no relief, only tumult, until Maillard, a patriot agitator, conspicuous as one of the captors of the Bastille and since, harangued them. Maillard, who was in touch with the leading spirits among the politicians of the sections, told the women that there was nothing to do with the Hôtel de Ville, but that he would lead them to Versailles, where they could see the king and persuade him to give them bread and to come back with them to Paris. A motley procession poured out from Paris following Maillard into the country roads and villages on the way to Versailles. Armed men had joined the women, and a few cannon had been found and were dragged by hand. Meanwhile, Lafayette, always sent for in emergencies, had arrived at the Hôtel de Ville, while alarming reports began to reach Versailles of the approach of the women of Paris. Lafayette was quickly joined by a large force of National Guards, and while he awaited instructions and pacified them with occasional harangues, Bailly and his councillors debated as to what course to take. Finally, at about five in the afternoon, it was decided that Lafayette and his men should proceed to Versailles to preserve order and act according to circumstances. Long before the Parisian troops could arrive, Versailles had been taken by storm by the women. They tramped in under a beating rain, many having lagged or fallen exhausted by the way, and at once sent deputations to the assembly and the king. They wanted food, and they wanted decrees that would put an end to starvation. To the men of the regiment of Flanders, drawn up to protect the palace, they announced the same thing, and their appeals were so irresistible that after some hours the colonel of the regiment, on declaring that he could not answer for his men any longer, got permission to return to barracks. But by this time Lafayette had reached the scene and had stationed his battalions so as to protect the palace. An anxious night was passed. In the mob were very dangerous elements. The grills and walls, the courts, the grounds and the buildings of the palace covered a wide area. The organisation for defence was defective. The Garde du Corps were trustworthy but not numerous. The king gave few orders, and those benevolent or timid. The unrest and pressure of the mob was irresistible. In the early hours of the morning a determined group of men got into the palace and immediately began to force their way towards the queen's apartment. As the 6th of October opened, a scene of great excitement took place within the palace. 
Garde du corps were cut down while protecting the Queen's flight to the King's apartments. Lafayette was sent for in haste, and some sort of order was restored. But meanwhile, the mob had invaded the main courtyard, and it required all of Lafayette's great popularity and tact to avert a fatal outbreak. As it was, he persuaded Louis that the only course was to accept the popular demand for his removal to Paris. He harangued the mob. He induced the king and queen to show themselves at a window. He gracefully kissed the queen's hand, and he eventually prevailed. At noon, Paris began to flow back from Versailles to the capital once more. But now Louis and his family were in the midst of the throng. In a great lumbering coach, surrounded by the populace, Louis and his wife and children were proceeding from the Palace of Versailles to that of the Tuileries. An epoch of French history was coming to a close. The Austrian princess, looking out and seeing a man of the people riding on the step of her coach, declared contemptuously that this was the first occasion on which an individual not wearing knee-breeches, an individual sans culotte, had occupied so honourable a position. The cry of sans culotte was taken up and approved on the spot as the symbol of worthy citizenship. But the cant phrase that belongs most closely to the event of the 6th of October was that whereby the Parisians declared triumphantly that they had now brought into their midst le boulanger, la boulangère et le petit mitron, the baker, the baker's wife and the little cook-boy. End of chapter 6